church. It is so good that you could join us today from wherever you are as we continue in our Pioneer series. I pray you're encouraged each week as you hear those testimonies. They're so wonderful, and it's just so neat to see how God is continuing to bring just wonderful people and great testimonies of what he has done in their lives to our church. Amen? And so I pray that's been a blessing every day, or every Sunday, excuse me, as you see those. Hey, here we are in our Pioneer Series, and we're kind of going near the conclusion of our Pioneer Series in the, over the next few weeks as we come into the Easter season, and we look forward to our Easter Series, but um, not to worry, we will pick up after Easter in another series that we're going to look at the missionary journeys of Paul. Uh, but we're getting towards the end here of the first 13 chapters, which kind of we're calling our pioneer part, because we wanted to study the faith of these new apostles, these new disciples, as they entered into the uncertainty um, that they were facing as the church began to blossom and grow. Well, we're all living in a time of uncertainty. Uh, things are starting to kind of get a little bit more clear, but not fully all the time. And it seems like the, the goalpost can move at any time, but faith is so necessary in those moments. And, and how many of you want to see your faith grown? And, and they say one of the best ways to grow your faith is to read the scriptures and literally read biographies of great faith. For people often can inspire us to have more faith. And so we've been having some fun in the beginning of each sermon. We look at a pioneer for that week. Now, now this pioneer is often known for his faith. Do, do you know anybody who has incredible childlike faith? My mom tells a story of her and my sister, when my sister was just little. Now, my sister's older than me. Um, she lives out in Colorado, but she was a little girl in the back seat of my mom's VW Bug. Do you remember them? Okay, now, now not these new school ones. This was old school engine in the back, all these things, you know, like sometimes run. I mean, this was a VW Bug, right? And um, unfortunately, my mom and my sister came out to the car and she got out her keys and went to start it, and guess what? All right, nothing. Ever have that happen? Nothing. And so my mom begins to think, what are you gonna do? Well, this was back, you know, back in the 1900s, right? So, so this was no cell phones. You had to get out and walk, hope a good Samaritan would stop by, you had to find, kids, there's these things called pay phones, okay? They were outside of like all gas stations. There was like these glass rooms we would get in. And sometimes we make something, ask your parents later at lunch, called collect calls, okay? Um, and, and we used to do all these things. So you begin to think when your car breaks down, like all the things you're gonna have to go through before this thing starts. Well, my sister, being a little girl in the back, you know, very nursed in Sunday school, said, well, mom, why don't we just ask Jesus to start the car? She goes, I want to pray that Jesus starts the car. Well, my mom's kind of like, you know, what do you do with that? No, don't, Jesus don't want to start our VW bug. You know, you don't, you don't do that to a child. At least you shouldn't. So she said, okay, Allison, go ahead and pray. And this little voice in the back, dear Jesus, start our car for us, you know, I don't know the prayer. I wasn't there. I think I was running around or laying in a pack and play or something. But she said, okay, mom. Amen. Okay. So my mom, what are you going to do? Here's this moment, you know. She puts the key in. 
And my sister kind of with a duh. Started the car. The Lord decided yes on that prayer. Now, many of you have been in cars that God has said no. <laughs> Time for a new one, or I have a lesson. Or if I, um, you knew this was good, right? right? But um, he said yes there. And, and, and her little faith, her little faith to say, God wants this car started, I'm gonna ask him. You know, I have no reason to think that, that the Lord wanted that that day because I'm still sharing it years later because it inspired her little brother when he had heard that story to pray big prayers for God or to God. And um, I've always wanted to pray faithful prayers and see God answer in massive ways. And um, I think everybody does. I, I think everybody would like to have a faith that's so strong that it immediately goes to the Lord, completely believing, banking on, and counting on that car to start. But what unlocks God's will? What unlocks the yes in prayer? Have you ever wondered that? Why does it seem some people know what that is and some just don't? Well, in, in today's, today's sermon, I, I wanna talk about some of those keys, but I also want to leverage a great person of incredible faith that maintained his childlike trust in prayer throughout the entirety of his life. And he's our pioneer today. Our pioneer, I'm reading from Christianity Magazine, our pioneer was not always a person of such great faith and good character. As a young boy growing up in Germany in the early 1800s, he often stole money from his father as a teenager, he sneaked out of a hotel twice without paying for the room. One time he was caught by police and put in jail. And when he went off to university, he loved to go to bars and drinking and gambling and being the life of the party. He also, this is funny that it actually shows up in his biography. He also loved making fun of people. <laughs> Do you know anybody like this? Like, like, like oh man, that's you. Like, he loved making fun of people. It's right here. Um, especially Christians. Love to make fun of Christians. Um, one day, a friend invited him to go to an off-campus Bible study, and he went, and it says, only because he wanted to make fun of the Christians at the Bible study. And, and so to his surprise, he, he liked the Bible study. And for the first time, he saw people who really knew and loved God, and he attended each evening. Before the end of the week, he knelt at his bed and asked God to forgive his sins. His friends saw a change in him immediately. He no longer went to these places and made fun of people. He spent more time reading scripture, talking about God, going to church. Soon he found that his friends didn't even want to be around him anymore. When he told his father that he had decided to become a missionary, his father became very angry. He wanted his son to have a high-paying job and not be some poor missionary. And he told him that he would not give him any more money if that's what he was going to go to school for. Yet, our pioneer knew he had to do what God was calling him to do. And even at that young age, and even if his dad didn't support him, he went back to college without knowing how he was gonna pay for his tuition. He did something he thought was a bit silly for a grown man to do, or at least a college student. But he got on his knees for the first time. Have you ever gotten your knees in prayer? It, it changes your mindset. He got on his knees and he asked God to provide. 
Within minutes, there was a knock. And for the man that has now been called the father of orphans, the rest was history upon opening it. Who is our pioneer today? George Muller. A whatever, whenever, however kind of faith this man embodied. What happened in that room? Well, he goes on to say, I, I did really want to ask God for something so small. But I knelt down and I prayed, Lord, I need books. I need food. I need tuition. I need your help. And it turned that it was God's will. For a knock came at the door and it was an American professor who had come to Germany, did not know the native language and needed a tutor. He said, George, I need you to tutor me to be able to speak your native tongue. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't have time. I can't, I need a job. I don't have books. He said, no, 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 don't. Shh. This is a job, I will pay you. George said, what? He goes, in fact, there are three other American professors and we will all pay you a handsome salary if you are to do this for us and tutor us. And within minutes, God had provided him funding. They were also asking of him if he would like to go with them for they had been given a small wing in an orphanage to stay for free. Would you like this place to stay for free while you attend university? Teach us your native language. And before you know it, not only did he have college paid for, but he lived somewhere for free that turned out to be a strategic placement. For it was that that inspired him to do the unthinkable and build an orphanage in Germany. He said this, after marrying his wife, I intend with God's help and provision to open a children's home. There will be no going to man for funds or provisions. We will rely on, God's, uh, on God alone. In other words, we will pray that God brings the money to us. We won't go out and take natural fundraising means. We'll just pray that the money comes to us. And he began to pray for funds. And before you know it, he not only opened a home in 1836, but three additional homes were added. And in all said and done during George Mueller's life, without asking for anything, God brought him approximately over $180 million to pay for all of the ministries Mueller felt called to do. This man of great faith, this man that seemed to understand how to take the key out of prayer, put it in the ignition of God's will and turn it and the car starts, has awesome faith quotes. Here's a few of them. You just gotta hear them. Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. If you're in a position today, child of God, where you say it's impossible for that child of mine to ever turn back to the things of the Lord, God's rolling up his sleeves. If you're in a position today where it's impossible for me to get out of this, there's no way I can get out of this in my own strength, God's rolling up his sleeves. For that's the faith that it's gonna take, but it's gonna take faith in him, not, not just this maybe this whim of, oh, that'd be kind of cool. It's gonna take this incredible faith that Mueller had. What did he know? What did he know about faith? Well, he said, you know what? There's certain things that are kind of the food of faith. 
What? Yeah, faith, if it's a person, it would eat these things. Okay, I'm interested. Here's the quote. Trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes even defeats are the very food of faith. I don't like any of those words. But it's those words where we find out we're helpless, we're in great need, we're struggling, and our faith is going to either draw us closer to the God of the universe or the enemy's going to sneak in doubt that pushes us farther away. You know, it's said we're living in an epidemic of anxiety. What would a great man of faith say about anxiety? Here's a quote for you. He says this, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith, and the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. Unless you have a faith in this almighty God, you can almost bank on a life of anxiety. So if I'm the devil and I want to destroy people, I want to destroy their faith in God, which will destroy their prayer life, which will destroy their life, which will destroy a lot of things. And it'll bring anxiety into the room. Faith, great faith. There was another knock on his door at the orphanage. You see, there had been a time period where the orphanage was struggling for food. They kept adding children and adding children and adding children and adding children. They just felt called to do that. But the food was beginning to run short. They had made it a prayer request and they had seen that there is going to be a time period where we simply run out if food isn't brought. And he would get by. Each day they'd scrape by, scrape by, scrape by, but today would be different. There was a knock on the door and it was the director of the orphanage coming to Mr. Muller and they said this. Excuse me, Mr. Muller. Our worst fears are realized. We have run out of food. They said this around the 11 o'clock hour. Lunch is about to be served. The kids are expecting to be called to the lunch hall and they do not have food. Mr. Muller. It's happened. It's no longer food. What should we do? What should we tell the children? Mr. Muller looked at the director. And what's awesome about Muller's stories is they come from other people, not from him. And so other people tell the account of what he would do. And it's just incredible to hear this guy's faith. He turned to the director of the orphanage. He said, send the kids to the cafeteria. She said, excuse me? Tell the children to go to the cafeteria. Um, are we going to tell them something? He said, tell them to go to the cafeteria for lunch. Okay. She left. Sent the kids to the cafeteria. They come into the cafeteria. You understand. Yelling. Laughing. Here it comes. I mean, right? It's, ca- it's lunchtime. He said, Mr. Muller stood up in his office and looked out over the window. He saw a courtyard. And there's a little girl playing in the garden. He knew her. Her name was Abigail. He went down the steps. He walked up to Abigail. He said, Abigail, come with me. Mr. Muller's going to show you what God can do. Little Abigail followed him into the lunchroom. He walked up in front of all the children. He said, let's pray for lunch. Everybody in that room that wasn't a child knew there was no lunch. He said, Heavenly Father, thank you for the food you'll provide today for us for lunch. He went on to pray a little bit further, ended his prayer. I wouldn't be telling you the story if something didn't happen. Within the next few minutes, Abigail heard a knock on the door. It was a baker. 
He had woken the night before, and although he had been planning on bringing bread, he had not gotten it over to the orphanage yet. He was awoken in the middle of the night with a thought that he had not got the bread to the orphanage, and he brought it for them. Do they need it yet? He brought in the bread, and the kids had bread. As they were eating the bread, there was another knock on the orphanage door. It turns out a milk truck broke down right out in front of the orphanage. And the milkman said, in the time it's gonna take for my vehicle to be restored, this milk is gonna go south. Do the children need it for any reason? God provided milk. And Mr. Muller turned to Abigail and said, see what God can do. When we believe, he will do it. What, what, what does this guy know? Do you know there are hundreds of stories from Mr. Muller's prayer life that you can read if you'd like? He kept a prayer journal. He recorded his prayers so when God answered him, he'd go back and circle them and tell people stories about them. He was a man of incredible faith and I think we have much, much, much to learn from him, especially for anyone out there who wants to know what it feels like to ask God for something, put the key in in faith, turn it and watch him do it. I've had the privilege of seeing God work in some really neat, neat ways providentially through my life in ministry and I know if I pull the audience, you have as well. Today, I wanna to talk about faith. I wanna specifically talk about miracles that God does in his providential hand. And we're gonna leverage chapter nine of Acts, verses 32 through 43, for there's two miracles that God is gonna to do to show us what he's capable of and what he still is capable of. And I pray it encourages us today to pray differently, to live differently, and to grow our faith. What do you know, George Muller? I pray when you leave today, you'll know what he knew. Heavenly Father, use the text to encourage us to be people who pray believing, people who pray expecting, people who pray according to your will, people who pray knowing they have a God who not only hears their prayers, but wants to answer prayer but in order to see answered prayer, we have to know how you want us to pray. And so Lord, put all distraction aside and may we focus in on how you work, how you want to work, and may we align to your will that we might see the key go in and the car get started. Oh, maybe not for some physical vehicle on earth, but a spiritual start, a restoring, if you will, of a life Maybe the, the refreshing of a broken heart. Maybe even the rejuvenation of a life that got distracted. We'll pray these things knowing you're the God of miracles. Amen. Well, it's interesting. The first miracle we're gonna come across is that of Aeneas, okay? Do you know this guy, Aeneas of Scripture? His story is found in Acts chapter nine, and, and it's a story we only get to find out because God is gonna strategically place Peter in the town that Aeneas is in. 
Now, now what's interesting about this is we've been following Saul, right? We've been going around seeing Saul go up to Damascus and all these different things. Well, it's like Luke says, hey, time to check in on Peter, okay? You watch different shows on TV and they follow a character for a while and then they stop and they go to another character. Well, this is what Luke does. Let's go over and check on Peter. So that's what we're gonna do. Peter, it says in scripture, went here and he went there among them all and he came also to the saints who lived in Lydda. So it seems like there's already some believers in Lydda and Peter is going to go to them for God has something he wants to do. Now, Lydda was about 10 miles from the sea. It's where the current international airport in Israel, in the, in the city of Lod, it's right in there. So young people, please understand, these are accounts in scriptures. They're not mythical stories. They're accounts. These towns happen and are still there in different forms, obviously. And so it was there that uh, something happened neat. He found a man named Aeneas, and he was bedridden for eight, ye- eight years. Now, now, us guys, I want to talk to the ladies for just a second, because us guys go, I don't understand this. There are some ladies in here who have very difficult pregnancies, where the doctor even may have told them, hey, you need to actually go and spend some time in bed for a while. If that's your mom's story with you, you owe mom a nice lunch, all right? Because that is not easy for a mother to do, one, or anyone to do, to stay in bed sometimes a month, two months, or even three months is some people's testimonies. Eight years, and he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Look at this. Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. What, what, Peter? Yeah, yeah. Remember in Matthew, Jesus said, I'm going to give my apostles healing power. These were, these were referred to as sign gifts. We've already talked about this in our series of Acts. But during this transitionary time in scripture, the apostles were given some sign gifts. One was they were able to heal people. And specifically, Peter here was able to do that because they had been given that. And these sign gifts and these miracle gifts, which I don't believe are as necessary now that we have the canon of scripture, we have the word of God. These miracles at these times were to authenticate the messenger Okay, they were to authenticate the message and they were to spread the gospel. Now we have the scriptures authenticating the message. We have the scriptures authenticating the messenger and we have the scriptures spreading the gospel. But during this specific time period, the apostles had the ability to do these things and word would get out. And what would happen is the impact of the gospel would grow. And look what happened. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon. Now, Sharon is kind of this area here around the Lydda, Joppa, and beneath Caesarea. And they saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, if you recall, Saul was up here in Damascus. He went up into the Syria and Antioch area. He was up there sharing the gospel, and we got to hear the road to Damascus, and we saw the gospel advancing here. We saw Philip go down to Gaza, along the Gaza Strip area, into Egypt and Ethiopia, and the gospel went into Africa. It just kept spreading, and now it's spreading right here in the middle of, in the Israel area, in the Palestine area, between Judea and Samaria. It's like, it's like a T-Mobile or a Verizon map. They just keep getting coverage. And that's the whole point of what Luke wants to show you. God is advancing the gospel and using these miracles to do it. And he's got a second one. And it's this lady named Tabitha. Tabitha. Scripture says, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Teenagers, which would you go with? Which name? 
Um, I'm Tabitha, you could call me Dorcas, your call. I'm going Tabitha, right? I, I think I'm going Tabitha. If there is a Dorcas in here, please forgive me. Um, what does the name mean? The name means gazelle. In fact, in Palestine, they say there are now um, Dorcas gazelles even that might stem all the way back to this passage. But, but see, Peter's being kind of strategically moved like, like a chess piece, one to Aeneas to see the gospel, and now into Joppa for Tabitha's there. And Tabitha was awesome. Scripture says she was full of good works and acts of charity. Do you know anybody like this? Do you, do you know any ladies like this? They're just full of good works. They're probably sewing pillows with verses in it, right? They're like sending encouragement notes to people even if they never get encouragement back. They're praying for you. They're telling, they're praying for you all the time. They're constantly going out of their way to, to help you. They're just full, not, not, they have some good works. They're full of good works and then of acts of charity. You know, this grandma said, oh, we got candy over here. She's sending you checks at Christmas. You know, just, just full of this wonderful things. Well, Tabitha was like this as a woman. Ladies, to be known as a Tabitha is to constantly be focused on other people over yourself. How different in a world of so many focused on just self. Well, maybe you're, you're here today and, and I've leveraged guys like Barnabas and used them for males or females. Let me ask the guys, do you know any guys who are kind of like Tabitha's? They kind of are looking out for everybody. You know, they go to a restaurant and they're sitting there eating breakfast with you or something and they see somebody go by, it catches their eye and, and, they, and they go and they're sitting by themselves and it bothers them and they walk up to the register and say, hey, give me that lady's bill. I wanna pay for her. Do you know anybody like that? They're just kind of always looking out for other people. They're not so individualistic. They're not focused on themselves and how people are ruining their day. They just kind of wake up and they go, hmm, I'm looking around seeing who needs encouragement and love. This is the way Tabitha was. Do you know a Tabitha? I, I put something in my own notes. I, I, I like to build things that I can go back to in life to encourage people with. And, and if you know a Tabitha in your life, I wanna encourage them with some kind of characteristics I've noticed about just servants. And, and I put this, the contradictory life of a servant. You say, what, what, is, what, what is that? What is, contradictory? What do you mean? Have you ever noticed that when Jesus calls us to serve, it's counterintuitive to culture? It's like the exact opposite of what culture would do. Uh, let me illustrate the motives behind serving from scripture. If you ever hear in scripture, it says, hey, serve one another, okay? And you're like, I ain't serving people. Freshman on the baseball team, carry all the bags. I ain't carrying all the bags. If you ever wonder what this servant thing is, look at some of the motivations God gives or Jesus gives for serving. And you'll see there's words here that the world wants. Hey, does anybody wanna be first? <laughs> I heard of a swimmer one time. He tattooed the number two on the back of his head. I was like, why did you tattoo number two on the back of your head, man? He goes, well, I just wanted the guy behind me to know what place he was in. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want to be first? You want to be great? Yeah! You want to be significant? You want to be known? You want to have lots of followers? You want to be exalted? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Jesus says, okay, okay, okay. You want to be great? This is what servants know. You want to be first? Then go last. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Mark 9, 35, Jesus says, the last will be first, and the first will be last. In other words, this world, you got to be first to get recognized, but in Jesus' kingdom, you know who gets recognized? 
those who go last. So servants, one of their motivations, if they want to be first, they go last. How about greatness? You know, Jesus calls to his disciples in Matthew 20, he says, hey, any of you want to be great? I bet they all were like, wait, 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 hey, shh, we're talking about something good here. Yeah? Do you notice he doesn't say, well, you can't be. You're Christians, knock it off. He says, I'll tell you, I'll be great. Serve. I'm sure it took the air out of their sails. Oh, jeez. Serve. You want to be great? If a servant wants to be great, they become a servant. You want to be great? Then be the most important person in the room and walk in, grab a towel, and wash somebody's feet. That was the model Jesus gave. For those who will be great will be servants. You want to be significant. First Peter, Pastor Peter, shares with his church, use your gift to serve other people. How many people use their gift to serve themselves? I have some talents here. I could be significant. I could make this about seeing me. Peter says, no, no, no. Take your gifts and share them with others. That's the motivation of a servant. You want to be known? I mean, who doesn't want to be known, right? They want to be known. Servants want to be known. So they love other people, not themselves. In a world of selfies and trying to get people to see you and clout following and all these things, he's saying, you really want to do something? Love others. Because we find in John that they will know you by your love. And then finally, the, the servants, they're motivated by the fact that they want to be exalted. Well, that seems wrong. Well, the world wants to be exalted self, but servants want Christ to be exalted in them. So they want to be exalted, so they come to serve like Jesus, who in his humility gave himself for others that is now exalted above all and is the name of all, of all names. To live the servant life, your motivation is countercultural, counterintuitive. It's contradictory to what the world is calling you to do. It seems as if the world is motivated by Satan's pride and the servant is motivated by Jesus' humility. Do you know how much faith it takes to live a life like that? Do you understand how much faith it takes to walk into work and try to think about other people over than yourself? You, you might not get the position. You might see somebody lie behind. You have to have so much faith that Jesus sees what you're doing and is honoring it and rewarding it and using it. You have to have tremendous faith to be a Tabitha. What will God do with someone who chooses to look at life through the lens of only Jesus? What could he possibly do? I can't wait to read about Tabitha's life. Let's see what happens. Let's see what the Lord does. God loves to use people. Here we go. Here we go. And scripture says, and in those days she became ill and died? God, seriously? I mean, there's somebody else that could die? I mean, Tabitha? I mean, thought we were going to use her big time. And she's, why, why you let her get sick? And why, why has she got to die? I'm confused. You ever get confused with God's plan? You ever not understand God's plan? You ever go, what are you doing? Tabitha? Can't we pick some horrible person? Tabitha? And they washed her and they laid her in the upper room. Let's read. I need to know more. Since Lida was near Joppa, okay, Lida's where Peter was. We're in Joppa now. 
So the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, they, they sent two men to him. What's going on here? What's going on here? Go, go get Peter. Oh, is it possible they heard about Peter healing this man and maybe he could heal her? Okay, let's read. Urging him, they urged him, please come to us without delay. Get up here. And when he arrived, they took him into the upper room and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing their tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. How many of you love the grammatical study of the word of God? There's an interesting word here. It says shown. It, it, it's in its original form, it's spoken in a middle voice, it's called. So in other words, it seems to indicate that these ladies, these widows, were her ministry. Tabitha ministered to widows. And it seems, because of the middle voice, they're wearing tunics, they're wearing dresses that Tabitha sewn for them. Any sewers here? Tabitha sewn these tunics for these widows and, and for these left outs, for these overlooked she made them things that made them feel beautiful and nice and they're wearing them for him and they're crying and their room is filled with this and, and, and Dorcas is the reason they're all gathered and Peter walks into this room of all these women weeping and guys, he does what all guys do. Hey, everybody out. <laughs> Something's gonna happen. What are you gonna do, Peter. I don't know how to handle all this crying, so let me have some space here. And these awesome ladies left the room, and Peter comes in to Tabitha, and after putting him outside, he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and he raised her up. And then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. Can you imagine that celebration? Here is Tabitha. She was dead and now she's alive. She is a resurrection story. She is a miracle. And God is still performing miracles. Is it necessarily a physical healing? I don't know in each situation, but I do know this. He is spiritual healing all the time. And I'm standing here as one of his miracles. For what happened inside of me, the day I came to know Jesus Christ as my personal savior, I called on his name. Oh, I was just a young guy. And in great faith, I said, Jesus, be my savior. I spoke it out of my mouth. I asked for him to come into my heart. And he became my savior. Oh, there wasn't immediate changes, but each step along the way, my faith grew, and my faith grew, and my faith grew, and I followed him into some scary things. I also betrayed him in some areas and had him pull me back, but my faith grew, and my faith grew, and I'm a resurrection story. I'm a miracle, for when I die here on earth, I'm going to live forever. It seems for children of God, death loses its sting because you know you're victorious in Christ, and he has that resurrection power that he's done in you, amen? And you can trust that and know that. And like Tabitha, you can celebrate that he has done this work. And when people heard of this resurrection story, look what happens. I mean, Verizon got some more coverage. The gospel got some more coverage. And it came known throughout all of Joppa. And many believed the Lord. Isn't it neat to see how God 
Worked miracles by providentially moving his servant towards them in Peter. George Muller says, it's so good to know that God not only does he order our steps, he orders our stops. Has he ever stopped you? Hold up. Stop. I know he has for me. Has he ever called you to attention to something? Has the Holy Spirit ever given you that nudge? Stop, right there. George Muller was infamous for sensing God's call on his life on where he was to go speak. He would pray about where he was called to go, so much so that he would have great confidence of wherever he was called to go. And there was one situation where he was crossing the Atlantic to go speak to a group of people and share the gospel, felt God's call, convinced of his call that he was to be there, that he boarded a steamer to head to his preaching engagement. It was an evangelist who went to tell this story that the captain of the steamer told him one day when he was on the ship. He told the evangelist, he said, five weeks ago, we were sailing this Atlantic and we had a man of God on board named George Muller. The evangelist said, yeah, we're well aware, the orphanage pastor. Yeah, 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 we had him on board. Can't tell you what happened? Because I'm different because of that trip. Do tell, Captain. He said, we were, we were traveling along and a dense fog settled over the ship. Huge dense fog. Some of you remember an Eagles-Bears game years ago? A huge fog settled over the ship and I could see nothing. And we didn't have the instruments, right? They didn't have the instruments back in the 1800s. We do now. But, but he said it settled over and we had to stop. And I'm up on the bridge of the boat and, and I'm like, I'm, I'm a man of God. I'm kind of going, what do I do here, Lord? What do I what do? I do? And, and I can't move. This ship's not moving. I feel unsafe. We could run into anything. Dense, dense fog. And I'm kind of nervous and I get a tap on my shoulder. And it scared me. I turned around and it's Mr. Muller. He says, Captain, yeah, I have an appointment to speak Sunday. It's Wednesday and I noticed we're not moving. Well, Mr. Muller, I'd be happy to get you there. I want to get you there, but you can see the fog. He looked. Let's go pray. Captain didn't want to let this great man of God down. Thought I'll go down and pray with him. This story is being told by someone else, not George Muller. They went down to the cabin area and George Muller did what he does. He got down on his knees. The captain got down with him and he said, George began to pray. And he said, it was like a child's prayer. It wasn't anything exciting. It was something you could hear in a Sunday school class. It wasn't this awesome theologically profound. It was basically this. God move the fog out in the next five minutes so we can get to my preaching appointment. And he said, amen. And the captain went on to tell the evangelist, he goes, and I went to pray. And George said, stop. I said, what? what? Dear Heavenly, stop. You don't need to pray. Because one, you don't believe God will remove the fog. And two, I've already prayed, so the fog's gone. Captain said, I went up those stairs and looked out and doggone it if the fog isn't lifting and we got to his preaching appointment on time. All right, George, what do you know? 
What's the key? What activates this? Uh, I'll give you a hint, and you're not really going to like it. If you're into getting what you want, you're not going to like this. If you're into going, I'm going to learn how to maneuver this God of the universe, you're not going to like this. For George says, here's one of the keys. I got to a point, he said, where I died to self. See, there was a day when I died. I died to myself, my opinions, my preferences, my tastes, my will. That wasn't his prayer life. I died to the world, its approval or its censor. I died to the approval or blame, even of my brethren or friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. See, see, George's goal in life was not to align to what the people listening to him wanted. His goal in life was not to align to what everyone in the world wanted him to do. His goal was to align to one opinion only. And that was his God's. And in order to know what he wanted... He had to know what he said. And so he became a student of the scripture. He became a student of knowing what God wants so that when he prayed, he was praying prayers that were God's will. Did you know in scripture, there are four verses that basically Jesus says to you, if you ask whatever you want, you'll get it. Did you know that? What, what, what is this some kind of blank check? No, 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 not at all. In fact, Within those prayers and a few more are the very keys that unlock praying in God's will. I call this whatever you ask. It's, it's kind of my prayerology. I want to give you some verses here for your prayer life that can help steer you, that can help mold and shape your prayers to your heavenly father, especially for those in here who say, I would love to see some answer prayer. I want to give you some prayerology, and it starts with this. Have you, ever, have you ever driven your car into a pothole? Too soon? Too soon? Maybe this week, the Lord will give you an illustration. Oh, it's terrible. Boom! It's like the car explodes. It's always someone else's fault. Come on, quit distracting me. But what's really worse is... You go back a second, we'll get there. What's really worse is when you're, when, you're, when you're driving later and you know you hit a pothole and you let go of your steering wheel. Young people, when you start driving or if you just start driving, let go of your steering wheel. Don't do this for a long time because Pastor Chris told me, don't do this. Let go of it and if it turns a little bit, you know you're out of alignment, right? I've driven cars, I've driven church vans where you could take your hands off and they're like, and they gear off to the side, right? And what do you need? You need to go get realignment done or your tires are gonna wear out and I can go into all the dad speeches you want, right? See, we go get the car realigned. We don't call the borough and say, hey, here's this thing. I hit a pothole, it's got me off track and so when I let go of the steering wheel, my car turns to the right. So here's what I need you to do. Could you make all the roads in Perksy go to the right? We don't do that. I mean, you go, actually, I know a few people who actually do write that. Okay. We don't say, I want everything to align to me now. We understand we have to get some realignment. When your prayer life is not in alignment, you don't go to the heavenly father who knows what's best, who's in charge of all things and say, hey, I need you to change. Because you know what makes that you? Well, you know what you are then? You're God. So why do you have to pray for another God? Your God. Align to me, God. Well, why do you need to pray for a God when you're the God? 
See, but when you die to yourself and you start praying whatever, whenever, however, your will be done, you begin to align to God and you pray different prayers. And I believe there's kind of seven key aspects to this prayerology, I like to call it, that should shape your prayer life. Here, here's one, pray believing prayers. Scripture says in Matthew 21, 22, I'll quote Jesus, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. We find other texts that say, the man who prays without believing, it's really not even worth it. You must pray believing he's gonna do it. In humility, haven't you prayed some prayers where you kind of really know you don't believe he'll do it? Can we just be transparent? God, I'm praying this, but I think we both know that's not gonna happen. God wants believing prayers. Two, expecting prayers. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask, there it is again, for in prayer, believe that you have, what? Received it, and it will be yours. Pray expecting prayers. Have you ever noticed in scripture, you're, you're taught to pray a lot and this word thanksgiving keeps coming up? Have you ever noticed that? And you're like, why would I pray thanking? I'm like asking somebody. I, don't, well, I, I mean, it's like thanks means I know you're gonna do it. Do you have somebody who texts you, hey, I need you to do this, thanks? The idea is I know you'll do it, right? So this idea of thanksgiving and prayer is this expecting that you're going to do it. And these pile on top of each other. That's why I wanted to put them all together. George Muller said, I believe God has heard my prayers. He will make it manifest in his own good time that he has heard me. I had a sister in Christ come up to me. She said, I used to believe the lie that God doesn't hear my prayers. I have grown in my faith enough now that the devil's not allowed to have that one with me. I know God hears me regardless of the timing of his answer. I said, that's so awesome to hear how your faith has grown past that lie that you know God hears you, he hears his kids. Here's a third one, abiding prayers. What are abiding? There's an idea of abiding where there's a life-giving flow that's going through. It can also carry the idea of remaining with someone. Scripture says in John 15, six, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The idea here is this, when we're abiding in scripture, when we're remaining in scripture, this floods our prayer life and we begin to pray things that are in complete alignment with scripture. You see, prayer is not getting God to align to you. That makes you God. It makes, it, prayer is getting us to align to him. And so when we pray, he wants us to believe and aligns us. He wants us to expect him to. He wants us to abide. But here's a fourth one. Glorifying prayers. Scripture says in John 14, 13, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that what? The Father may be glorified in the Son. John 14, 13. Hey, young guys out there, I, I loved basketball growing up. I used to hang on my chin-up bar because I saw it in a Michael Jordan video that he thought he got taller by hanging on it. So I hung on it. You see how it worked for me? I mean, God, we're going to be six, seven, six, eight, seven foot, you know? I think my dad was five, seven, five, eight. I don't know what I was thinking, but I was believing. That clearly wasn't God's will for me in my life. He had different plans. But I knew why I wanted to be that size, so I could be in the NBA. 
That prayer was all about Chris and what Chris wanted to do to bring glory to himself. As I've matured in my faith, I don't pray prayers like that. In fact, young person, if you wanted to pray a prayer like that, it would probably be better to align it like this. God, if you want to use me to glorify your name in professional athletics, Lord, may I be entrusted to, by you to do that. That would be at least a better prayer as you begin to align with what he wants. I still hung on the chin-up bar. He wants sacrificing prayers. Scripture says in James, Pastor James says to his church, one more. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You want what you want here and you want to spend it wrongly. You're going to use this for self. I want you to pray sacrificing prayers. That aligns to God. There's another, according prayers. 1 John 5, 14 through 15. And this is the confidence we have in toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Did you hear that? If we ask according to his will, if we get in alignment with his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. Because we got in alignment. You see, prayer and seeing God answer prayer is getting in alignment with his will for that situation. But there's this little prayer hack that's helped me for the times when the car doesn't start. In fact, this past week, I put a key in a car and turned it. My daughter and I, down in Jenkintown. Oh, no way. No way. No way. You been there? Oh, it must be in neutral. Oh, no way. No way. No way. And, it, and if you've lived long enough, guys, you start going through, okay, this is another two hours of my life. And then you start processing the tow truck. You start processing, no way. Is it the batteries, the alternator? You're going through all these, no way. And I, and I prayed. Please. <laughs> 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 Sometimes it's not God's will. I had other things to learn that night, and I did learn other things. And actually, some really cool things. But I got this prayer hack, and I wanna to give to you for those times where you don't get really what you were hoping for. I call them yielding prayers. You understand Matthew 7 informs your prayer life? Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Which of you, if your son walks up to him and you and says, hey, dad, can I have some bread? You go, yeah, here's a stone. Thanks, jerk dad. Jesus is saying, that's not how I work. And which of you, when he asks for a fish, he gives out snakes. I don't give out snakes. I have prayed many prayers in my life that would have been snakes or would have been stones. And God said, Chris, I'm gonna have to get you on this one. You don't want what you're asking for. See, God only not only orders our steps, he orders our stops. And he also knows what we might be praying, that we think this has got to be your will, God. This has got to be your will. 
It's not my will. I have something else. I call them yielding prayers because God says this. If you then, you know who are evil, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I love to give good gifts. So if I don't, it's not what's best for the situation. See, see, the ultimate prayer life is coming to a point where you can put all these together, all these keys to praying, and you find this. Prayer becomes whatever you want to do here, Lord, whenever you want to answer it, and however you want to do it. That's the alignment that activates God's will. And, and for those times, oh man, let me be as compassionate as I can. For those times when God's will isn't what you want, maybe a loved one you're praying for, and you're putting in the keys, you're in the shop, and it's the even if you don't times in life, right? It, it's those times where it, it's like, I, I, I want this. And, and you might have this little girl, she's in her bedroom, and she's praying, Jesus, save my grandma, save my grandma. And see, the devil likes to go back to all those stories too and say, see, God doesn't love you, God's not good. See, the reason grandma's dying is this is a sin-cursed earth. And only if she has that resurrection power within her that Jesus, if he saved her, will she live again. But Jesus is gonna do something even if he doesn't answer specifically how you want. Because I have found in ministry especially, when I'm praying for something I think it's God's will, but the car won't start, it means I'm wrong. I don't know what's best. And I've had to get to that point because there's sometimes where I question why it won't start. I, I turn it harder and I turn it harder and sometimes I even want to hit the wheel a little bit. We all have those moments in life. What is God's will? What is God's will? But maybe God's will in suffering is that he's working on the person suffering. Maybe he's softening their heart and they need to suffer for a while. Maybe he's gonna use the suffering that maybe even the enemy brought into their life. Maybe he's resetting their priorities and this time in the hospital, they're gonna come out 10 times better. Maybe he's expanding their effectiveness. I watched a little girl in our youth ministry go into the hospital with cancer in her knee and came out 10 years later an author writing books for Jesus. Maybe he's gonna loosen their chains. Maybe the suffering has come that throws them into a different scenario that loosens the chains of the environment they were in or the substances they were struggling with. Maybe he's working through them. Maybe that's God's will for the situation, that he's working through them. Maybe he wants to display their character as they go on to glory. Maybe he wants to honor their name. Sometimes as people are dying, they get some extended time so people can come around them and share how much they love them. And they get to hear what their life was about to others. He can use those times for suffering. But in those times where it just seems like I'm praying for this, I'm putting the key in, and it's not turning. God, you must have another plan, and I'm going to trust you. Even if this doesn't start, that your will is better than my will in this situation. George Mueller got that. He had a whatever, whenever, however prayer life. And he aligned his prayers to him. 
And he saw God answer in massive, massive ways. Bart Millar, mercy me. He wrote songs like, I can only imagine. His son goes through a health crisis. He said there was a time somebody came up to him and said, hey, I'm gonna be praying for healing for your son. And he said, like, I hadn't thought of that. He said, you get frustrated sometimes and I have to sing these encouraging songs to believers when my own faith is going through the works. And he said, I got to a point where I pray and pray and pray, but even if you don't take this from him, I am gonna stay faithful and I'm gonna trust that your way is best. As we conclude in prayer, I'm gonna spend, I challenge you to spend some time in prayer. Maybe a believing prayer, an expecting prayer, or abiding prayer. Maybe just spending some time to align to him. And as you're praying, that beautiful song is going to play in the background. I pray it encourages your heart as we close. Heavenly Father, Lord, we all want to see answer prayer. We all want to have that faith of George Muller. But Lord, we admit there are times when we struggle. And Lord, there might be a brother or sister who came here today. And they're a little frustrated, if you will, that the car won't start. And you want to realign them a little bit more. You want to realign that situation. For that little girl who's praying for a grandma in a room, there might be a grandma praying, Lord, take me home tonight. We don't know what your will is. And you hear all these prayers at one time and you know what's best. And it's difficult for us, Lord, because we're finite. We see death as an end. You see it as a fresh start in glory. Death has no sting for you, but it does for us. And there's many of us who are turning that key and turning that key and turning that key. Lord, in your great mercy, would you just, would you just in your way, through a verse, through a friend, through a loved one, tap them on the shoulder and say, you know I got you. And I know this is hard. But I'm going to work. I am working. And I'm aligning these things. And how regardless this plays out, always know, for my kids, I have their best and will do what's best. Thank you, Lord, for this assurance. Amen.